Turn to look this evening at Esther and chapter 8. We'll just read the chapter together first, I think, taking out the last verse of the last chapter, the connection. So, in chapter 7 and verse 10, you read, So they hanged Haman on the gallows, and that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, and fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Haggai, the scheme which he has devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king, and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favour in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadiah, the Haggite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews, who are in all the king's provinces. But how can I endure to see the evil that has come upon my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he tried to lay his hands on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as it pleased you in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is in the month Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded, to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on the royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, to kill, annihilate all the forces of any people or province who would assault them, both the children and women, to plunder their possessions. And one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published to all people, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horse went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command. And the decree, decree was issued in Susan the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel, of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honour, 
and in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews or proselytes, because fear of the Jews fell upon them. And we know the Lord will bless the reading of his word to us this evening. Well, we certainly enjoyed, haven't we, going through the book of Esther these last few weeks. When we started off, we first looked at the book, and it seemed perhaps uh, an unusual book in the Old Testament. We've mentioned already, and Brother Ray mentioned it at length last week, the name of God is not mentioned in the book, neither is it quoted in any of the New Testament books. But nonetheless, as we've seen within this book, we see the providential hand of God towards the people working out all the circumstances that would appear to be complete coincidences, plots within plots almost, as we have gone through the book. What we understand indeed is that God was at hand to protect his people. Because what we've discovered indeed, that what was underfoot here was none other than Satan himself seeking to annihilate the Jewish people. And why would that be? God declared to him in the Garden of Eden that of the seed of Abraham, through his seed, through the tribe of Judah, would come one who would be a saviour, one who would be his uh, destroyer, one who would defeat Satan. And so throughout the Old Testament, Satan had been behind men and women who sought to annihilate and to thwart the purposes of God. Even to a soul that would seek to throw a javelin at David, so seeking to end the Messiah line through which the Saviour had been foretold to come. And so has Satan had been able to win on this occasion. Again, he was seeking to thwart the Messiah line through which the Saviour was going to come. And of course, Revelation clearly tells us that. In Revelation 13, we discover that in, indeed that the men were energised by Satan himself as he sought to attack the people of God. And even to the other woman in Revelation 13, as she brought forth a man-child, speaking of the Saviour that was born. Speaking in Revelation 13, of course, as Israel as a nation. But then we come to Luke and we discover that Satan was also there energizing Herod to kill all the baby boys with the purpose of killing the Saviour before he even grew. On those occasions, and on this occasion in the book of Esther, the plans of the enemy were thwarted through the providential hand of God. In other words, God was at work in every circumstances that was taking place. We noticed even at the beginning that it was Esther, of all of the women in the land, was brought to prominence. And Mordecai had identified that as, as such, when it was her turn to go to stand before the king, the first time that she might receive the uh, royal scepter, if her life was to be pardoned, when she was to make request for her people, Mordecai had said to her, her uncle, perhaps it was for this time that God has raised you up. And she acknowledged indeed, or it was seen indeed, that the hand of God was behind all the circumstances. Even to Esther be chosen amongst all the virgins and the women that were taken to the palace, God had his hand on Esther. And then, of course, there was Haman, wasn't there? We saw there that he cast lots to determine which month 
they were going to attack the Jews. And what we discover when we come to Proverbs, we read this. He says that the lot is cast in the lap, and his every decision is from the Lord. So when they cast lots to see which month are they going to attack the Jews, as it was with Jonah, do you remember they cast lots to see who it was, was the cause of the storm and the trouble, and it says the lot fell on Jonah. That wasn't a coincidence, was it? Of all the soldiers, and all the sailors rather, it could have fell on. Of course, it could only have fallen on Jonah. He was the cause. And God's hand was in that lot. And it fell on Jonah. And here in the book of Esther, God was at work even when they came and cast lots. Think if it had been the next month. You'd only had four weeks to wait to attack the Jews. It was the very last month of the year. They had to wait 12 months for the decree to be allowed to attack the people. Why they chose to do that, I don't know. God's providential hand was at work again in their thinking and in their actions. And when they cast those lots, it went at the furthest possible time, allowing the other events to unfold that we read in the book, for God to work out his purposes and save his people. And then, of course, we read, as we looked through the last couple of chapters, even to the smallest of details, like a sleepless night. The king couldn't sleep. Well, did that really matter? But this was one night of all nights that it did matter. He couldn't sleep. And of all things to do to get himself back off to sleep, instead of counting sheep, he read the chronicles of the kings, all the things that had happened in his kingdom, and uh, scribes read to him how the Mordecai had saved him from discovering the plot that was to, intended to assassinate the king. And you remember, he said, well, what's been done to him? Nothing's been done to Mordecai. And so he said, Well, who's in the court? Let's have some ideas. And of all the people in the morning, in the early hours, it was Haman, the enemy of Mordecai, who was walking across the courtyard. And the king asked him, Mordecai, of course, thought he was going to honor him. How he went out, didn't he? Bitter. And uh, how angry he must have been, thinking he had to go and honor in the king's name very one he had built the gallows for his garden and he sought to have a hanged on them. But at the end of that chapter we discovered at the end of last week those very gallows that he had sought to hang Mordecai on, he himself was hanged and he lost his own life on the very gallows he intended for Mordecai. Of course when we look at the scriptures we can say well when we look at them it's by always enjoy looking for principles of the way that God works. And of course this is taken up in the New Testament, isn't it? And it's seen throughout scriptures and it's seen in our lives too. For the man sows that which he reads. Haman sought and sowed envy and pride and bitterness towards his enemies. And he suffered. He had in his heart murder towards Mordecai. And he suffered the very thing that he wanted to do to his enemy. God's providential hand was at work and uh, so we see the principles of which God works. Haman, the enemy of the Jews and of Mordecai in particular, was lifted up with pride, wasn't he? He had gone to the king in pride. With, with, uh, you know, he, he wanted to be made something of himself. And uh, the Proverbs again remind us that pride leadeth to destruction, says Proverbs 16. And verse 8, and certainly in the case of Haman, it led to 
his destruction when he walked across the king's court. At that time, on that particular moment, that night when the king couldn't have slept, and he read those words concerning what Mordecai had done. So it was that pride goes before destruction. And so he lost his life, and he was, as the enemy of Mordecai and the Jew, defeated through the providential hand of God. God was in the dice, in the lots, in the sleeplessness of the king, the tiniest of circumstances to bring about the deliverance of his people. And we said, we looked last time, didn't we, at the introduction to Esther, that God will not allow anything to ultimately happen to his people. He has a purpose for them, just as he has a purpose for you and for me, as his heavenly people. And so, when we come to the beginning of chapter 8, we've looked at this evening, we've discovered here that the enemy is dead. The enemy of Mordecai, uh, Haman, is, uh, has now been hanged, and events continue to move on. And what we discovered at the very beginning is that Mordecai becomes indeed a very wealthy man because the, uh, the house of Haman was given to Esther, who then gave it to Mordecai. In the Bible, when it talks about the household, it talks about their estate. In other words, everything that he owned, everything that belonged to Haman, his house, his possessions, his money, his bank account, they had such things in those days, everything that belonged to Haman was now given to Mordecai. And he ultimately, at the end of the chapter, left the presence of the king, honoured, in, in raiment suitable and a, 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 a wreath upon his head, indicating the favour and the blessing of the king, and he went out indeed a very wealthy man. He never intended to uh, pursue such things, but God blessed him in such a way. Well, the enemy was dead, but the people of God were still in impending doom. There was a decree that the king had signed, and it could not be reversed. This is best remembered, we're going to look at Daniel soon, uh, after we've looked at the book of Esther, and uh, we should be reminded when we come to the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest and most powerful of all despots and kingdoms. His rule went. Whatever he said happened. He could change his mind, and it went. After him came the Medes and the Persians, the times of Esther that we're reading about now. And they were governed by law, just as we're governed by law. But the Medes and the Persians could not be altered. Once the king had signed it, there was no going back. That was why Daniel, remember, found himself in the lion's den. Because the king had signed a decree, if anyone worshipped any other god or prayed, they would be put in the lion's den. When Daniel prayed, the king realised the trap he'd been led into, but he could not change it, though he was king. Because he had signed the decree and it had to be carried out. So Daniel was put in the lion's den. But God delivered him. That's what the Jews were facing here. The king had signed the decree and their lives were in peril. Haman had sought through the king that all the Jews in the province, and, and this is all the known world, the Medes and the Persians occupied from Ethiopia to India, that was all the known world at the time that every Jew should be killed and annihilated. And of course, we've seen that in history, haven't we, over the years, that Satan has been behind men to annihilate the Jews, even before our own lifetime, the Second World War, what the Nazis called the final solution when they tried to kill
kill all of the Jews in, in Europe. But what we discover here is that uh, the decree had been signed that all the Jews should be attacked and killed on a certain day, and that date was the furthest date it could have been, because God's hand was in the, the dice, the lot that was cast. But that decree could not be reversed. It was set, and uh, it was going to be carried out. And so we discover here that now Esther, for a second time, she risks her life to come before the king. That's difficult for us to appreciate the step that she took in the culture that we live in today. Nothing is equivalent, but in these days, no one ever went into the presence of the king, as we read in chapter 4 and 5. If anybody went into the presence of the king unannounced or uninvited, they would be put to death, unless the king held out his golden scepter and uh, they could then approach. So though he, she was the queen, her life was at risk if she went into the presence of the king. And so she went before the king, knowing that her people, the Jews, because she was a Jew, was at stake. And we discovered a number of things that she did. She came, and we discovered that she came, and she came and asked very carefully of the king her request. And how did she come? She first of all came with tears. She had tears on her face as she came and approached the king. She came in a submissive spirit. She came in a humble spirit. She didn't come demanding. She approached the king, and again, the second time, the king held out the golden scepter. She came forward and brought her request to the king, and she brought it with tears. I wonder when was the last time that we were in tears for the concern for the people of God. The Apostle Paul was, when he wrote to those at Corinth, he said, For ever much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you, with many tears. Many times the apostle was troubled and in tears when he thought of the affliction and the difficulties of the people of God. He constantly held them in his prayers. And we discover here also when the when Queen Esther came to ask for the king, she indeed came in a very submissive way as she came, and she didn't come demanding but she came and she spoke to the king very carefully. And again, the, the, the Bible reminds us, that the apostles would remind us that always let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So we should all be courteous and humble and Christ-like in our speech with one another, to be honest and to be without hypocrisy. And uh, Esther came. And she asked very carefully, and she spoke with grace, her speech seasoned with salt, how she came. Why was that? Because she came and she asked carefully that the king might write to write letters to override the first decree, which was devised by Haman, the enemy of Mordecai. She was very careful to put it in those words, that it was because of Haman, he had devised it. Because you see, those letters went out in the king's name. The one that she was asking and beseeching was the one who was responsible ultimately for those letters. 
He had signed it, he had decreed it, and he could not turn it back. And so she came very carefully and she again put the onus on Haman that made him look responsible, because so he was. But she came with careful speech to the king, not to make him feel responsible. And so we discovered as we've gone through that the king indeed gave request to Esther that they should be able to not annul the first decree, that wasn't possible, but to write a second decree that would have the effect of annulling the first decree. That was that the Jews might be prepared and lawfully allowed to defend themselves if attackers in the land or in the provinces throughout the known world of the empire of the Medes and the Persians, if they were to be attacked, they had the consent of the king to protect themselves and to save their lives uh, according to the law. And so the scribes were called and the decree was written and it was signed with the king's signet ring and what we read in verse 8 has been written in the king's name was sealed and no one can revoke. So now we have two decrees, one that says the Jews should be killed and the second one that they should be able to defend themselves that they might not be killed. And so what we discover then that with haste throughout the known world they went and delivered the second decree. The message had to go out to every Jew, to every province, throughout the whole empire, from Ethiopia to India, that they might receive the news. They had the longest possible time, because remember the Lord's hand was in the lot, to make ready. But nonetheless, the time was limited to when the first decree would be enacted, and the horses and the steeds went out throughout the kingdom. And the letters were delivered and made known so that the Jews were aware on the day that they were to be attacked and were able to defend themselves. And as a result of that, when the day came, they indeed were able to defend themselves. They were given permission by the king to uh, annihilate the women and the children and uh, to take possession. But we'll see later that they didn't actually do that. The king allowed it, but they didn't. They killed the men attack them in self-defense, but it would appear that they did not do all that they were able to do. So they acted in grace and kindness indeed, even to those who would attack them and be their enemies. And what we discover is this, that at the end of the chapter, we see that there was great joy and gladness, and the Jews had a feast and a holiday. Well, to this day, they have a holiday, and they have a feast, the Feast of Purim, when to this day the Jews remember this day when they were delivered from the plot of Haman to seek to annihilate them. And it says that the fear of the Jews fell upon the people and many sought to leave, many Gentiles sought to become proselytes and to align themselves to the Jewish religion and to follow the Lord. This is the only time in the scriptures that we ever read especially in the Old Testament, that the Gentiles sought to be joined unto the Jews. There's the few individuals, like Moab, uh, Ruth the Moabites, who uh, joined, and uh, Rahab, there's a few who were Gentiles, but on the, uh, this is the only occasion that a large number of Gentiles sought to uh, 
have the fear of the Jews upon them and sought to uh, join with them in their ways and their customs, just as Ruth did in the book of Ruth. When we look at these events, we can see it indeed as a historical narrative, or so it is. God is declaring by inspiration what happened historically in the saving of his people, in his providential care for them during these events. But we can also look at it um, dispensationally in relation to Israel as a nation. Because certainly in the coming days, Zechariah tells us that though Israel as, as a nation, the Jews have been put to one side, and God is now dealing with the Gentiles, because they have rejected the Messiah, the, the Lord Jesus, they have turned their backs upon God, and as a nation, they are in unbelief. Of course, there are individual Jews who are saved and become Christians, but as a nation, they have rejected God. They refuse to believe that the Scriptures speak of Christ. But in the coming day, that will be restored. And Israel, as a nation, will know the Lord. And Zechariah tells us in the coming day, where many people, in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 22, says, yes, many people, strong nations, shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language of the nation shall cross the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Fear came upon the Gentiles when they saw that God delivered them in the days of Esther. And Zechariah was telling us that in the coming day, there will be, uh, what was it, ten, for in those days, ten men of every language of every nation shall cross the sleeve of the Jewish man. Ten men to one Jew. They will have come to acknowledge in the coming day, when the Lord Jesus comes again to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, that God is with the Jews. And through the Jews, God will bless the nations. And uh, Paul speaks of that, doesn't he, in Romans? It says, if the world has been blessed now through the falling away of Israel, what will be their blessing when they are restored? And God indeed seeks to bless the nations through his chosen people, Israel. And he and the people acknowledged uh, the fear that, uh, that fell upon them in that day when God delivered them. And that will happen in a much more wonderful way when they will rejoice and acknowledge God indeed is in amongst them. And the nations will recognize that and will want to be joined to, to the Jews and to that which will be taking place at, at Jerusalem when the Lord will be there and reign on this earth for a thousand years. But also when you finally look at this chapter, there are other principles that we can see here. And there's also a little picture, if you like, for our own day in which we live. Because there was a decree that was irrevocable because of the plot of an enemy, though that enemy was defeated. And there is a decree that has gone out, indeed, isn't there, today in which we live. A decree upon all people because of the ploy of the enemy going back from the Garden of Eden. When Satan first sought to tempt Adam and Eve to disobey God, they disobeyed God. And as a result of that, God had told them that the day you sin and disobey my command, you will surely die. That is a decree that is now upon all men and women of the world, and that is irrevocable. 
That is not a decree that can be taken back. God will not go back on the decree that the wages of sin is death. He will not go back on the decree that says the soul of sinner, it shall die. Why is that? Because that decree, just as it was here in Esther chapter 8, was according to the, the command of the king, and he could not alter the law. And so it is with God. The decree that has been judged upon sin and the sin of mankind will not be altered because it is connected with the character of God. God cannot lie. You know, many women today think that after a long process of time, God will change his mind. That he won't look upon sin as so, uh, as so bad as it is. God is not a man that he should lie. He will not change. And Matt was bringing to our attention recently, wasn't he, that God does not change. And we rejoice in that. To know that the one who we've come to remember this evening and to speak to does not change. He doesn't change because God is holy. And God's attitude towards sin does not change. And God will not ever overlook sin. Why? Because as the prophet Nathan tells us, that God is good. And if God overlooks the smallest of sins, he is not good. But God is good, and he will not change. In the sphere in which we live is the sphere of the enemy. Because we live today, don't we, in this world, and the Bible tells us that the devil is the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who held sway over the whole world. Just as the influence of Haman here was influenced the whole world and the decree affected all of them. But he was now defeated, he was dead. And we rejoice, don't we, that the enemy who is the prince of the power of the air is a defeated enemy, a defeated foe. That's why the apostle tells us he goes around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Because he knows his time is short, his time is numbered because he has been defeated. He sought a mighty realm and a kingdom for himself in Haman, didn't he? And he lost the lot. And that was so the case with Satan. To him was given the kingdoms of the world. To him was given, uh, remember when he took the Lord Jesus in Luke, it says, Then the devil taking him up on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. In the Garden of Eden, where man fell, they lost, and lost what should have been his dominion. It was given to Satan. Luke tells us here, that all the kingdoms of the world that Satan showed the Lord when he tempted him was his rightly to give to the Lord. But the Lord Jesus would not take them and bow down to him. The Lord Jesus defeated him at the cross. He defeated him that had the power of death. That was the first decree. That death has come upon all men because of the decree that God has declared because of sin. So Haman lost everything. He lost his life and lost the dominion he wanted and so sought after through pride. And then, of course, was what Satan fell through. Through pride, he lifted up his throne and said, I will be like the Most High. 
And in uh, Isaiah chapter 14, seven times we read that he lifts it up his heart in pride. We read all the things that I will be, I will be like, I will do this. And God brought him down. And it was at the cross, the Lord Jesus defeated him who had the power of death. And then a second decree has now been made. The second decree is the gospel. The first decree concerning death cannot be annulled. God will not change. He will not overlook sin. But the decree of the gospel, of the grace of our Lord Jesus, has been commissioned to us as believers. Just as these people here were commissioned to go throughout the whole world to spread the news of the second decree. So the Lord Jesus said to, didn't he, to his people, go ye into all the world and make disciples. To preach the gospel and to make disciples. And to those that receive the message and accept it and act upon it, just as the Jews here in a picture, uh, it doesn't correlate completely, of course, but as they uh, reacted and uh, did that which the decree had uh, brought to them, they rejoiced, they had joy, and they had light. And so it is on the day of Pentecost that the Jews there, along with many of the Gentiles, receive the gospel. They receive light in their life, and they receive joy instead of fear. They receive life instead of the prospect and the fear of death that they had all lived under, under the first decree. So, what a message we have. What a difficulty we face perhaps now in the days in which we live. A day where we were so loved to fill the hole with children and to do the things that we would like to do during this present pandemic. It won't last for always. It will only be here for a time. It seems a long time at the moment, but it will pass. And, uh, but even so, even in these circumstances, some of us were meeting yesterday, you know, the Apostle Paul, he was imprisoned, and yet he still spoke of the Saviour. And many who came to the prison cell heard him speak, and many became Christians. And Esimus, you remember, was one of them. Met the Apostle in Rome, and he too became a Christian and went back to Philemon. And so even though he was locked down, if you like, in prison, Paul still preached the gospel. Well, we have a decree that God has given that men will die in their sins. They're thinking to escape this pandemic and escape that or this. But every one of us are under the first decree. Men will die if they do not respond to the second decree that God has given us. And he's commissioned us that we should go out throughout all the world. Well, not all the world. We're here 2,000 miles from Jerusalem, aren't we? Believers have gone throughout the world. And God has placed us here. But in our area, in our home, in our neighborhood, we might seek to make known the good news. Because they had a set day when there would be no more opportunity, the enemy would attack. God has set a day when he will judge this world in righteousness. And uh, that's the imperative, isn't it, for us to make known the good news of the second decree that God has made that will counteract the first. That here, if we believe the gospel, there is life. But of course, we have believed that and we rejoice in it. It's wonderful, isn't it, to see little pictures in the scriptures of the way that God has worked throughout all the, uh, all the time and is still working to this day. Because the way that God works and the principles in how God works is just the same. How wonderful to see the 
providential care of God amongst his people as he delivered them, not just Esther, but all the people of God according to his will and according to his purpose. Well, we'll complete the chapter on him, complete the book in the next couple of weeks. So this evening was supposed to be um, a discussion week on Daniel, considering the first four, week, four chapters that we've already um, considered um, uh, over these last few weeks. Obviously this week is not going to be a discussion week, um, so it's, it's more like a, an interim week. Um, and what we're going to consider this evening is... Um, some passages from Daniel. We're going to recap uh, a little bit of what we've been considering the last uh, four um, sessions in the first four chapters of Daniel. And, um, and the main thing that, we, that I want to consider is the nations um, that rise and fall within this period. Um, so we're going to consider how God's dealings with these nations of the world demonstrate his existence and uh, his sovereignty and his all-encompassing power and might. We've learned over the last few weeks that God is in total control from the situations that we find ourselves in our present day to all of the events that unfolded in times past in history. God was and is in total control. He was in control of the leaders, of the rulers, of the nations and even our lives today. The Bible says that God is behind the rise and fall of nations. It is he who guides the course of the nations and their history. And his working with the nations of the world demonstrates his might, his existence, and that he is in control of all that has happened in the past and all that will happen in the future. So just as we open this uh, topic, we'll just read a few verses from Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and we'll just read a few verses um, from verse 21. And he, and he changes the times and the seasons... He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with them. I thank you and praise you, O God, my Father. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. The Bible gives the following testimony that nations rise up because of God's desires. God is the one who sets up the nations. Moses emphasised this to the children of Israel when he wrote the following. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8. And when that verse says the Most High, this is the title for God, emphasising his sovereignty and authority over all nations, with the amazing revelation that in the plan for the world, God has 
at his goal, the salvation for his chosen people. And God ordained a plan whereby the number of the nations, that is 70, as revealed to us in Genesis 10, correspond to the number of the children of Israel, 70, according to Genesis 46, 27. And furthermore, as God gave the nations their land, he established their, their boundaries, he gave to them their lot, uh, leaving Israel enough land to sustain their great and growing population. We learn that from the scriptures that God alone is in control of all these things. He is the one that controls the destiny for these nations, where how they will rise, whether they will fall. And people from times past and even now fool themselves into thinking that they are in control. But in the end, it is God is the one that is in total control of all things. So secondly, the Lord sets the boundaries of the nations. It is God who also sets the various boundaries of the kingdoms of the world that he has um, set up and allowed to be established. The Apostle Paul said to a crowd in Athens, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Acts 17. The limits of any rule are set out by the Lord. He raises up rulers and he removes them. All men are equal in God's sight, since all came from one man, as we can appreciate Adam. This teaching was, was a, a blow to the, um, to the national pride of the Greeks, who believed that all non-Greeks were barbarians. We see that in Romans 1.14. It is God who determined their pre-appointed time. God sovereignly controls the rise and fall of all nations and all empires that we will consider in a moment or two. And uh, that verse also teaches us that he controls not only their pre-appointed times, whether they will rise and fall and when all this will take place, but also the boundaries of their dwelling, how much land they will occupy, how great a nation will become. And God is responsible for establishing these nations as to their racial identity and specific geographical locations as well, as Deuteronomy 32 would outline to us, determining the extent and success of all conquests within any particular nation or empire. So the nations rise up because of God's desires. God allows it and desires it. The Lord sets the boundaries of the nations. And thirdly, he is the judge of those nations. He allows all of these things to take place and is in utter control of all that, that comes to pass. But ultimately, he is also the judge as to what these nations do with that, um, that reign that has been given to them. As Dad outlined last week, when we considered Nebuchadnezzar and the pride that he had for his kingdom, and how he looked at all the things that he had made, and all of the uh, initials that had been engraved on every single brick in his great kingdom, 
And he looked out at what he could see and he had great pride within his heart at all of the accomplishments that he had made. God is the judge of all such nations and these rulers and kings and those that God allows and puts into these places of authority will be accountable to God for the way that they conduct themselves. And we as individuals must have um, that uh, respect for that authority that has been set over us and obedience to the governance that is in our, in our nations that God has ordained and allowed. But God is the one who ultimately judges these nations. The psalmist wrote about the aspect of God's character. He said in Psalm 75 verse 4, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. This powerful statement in Psalm 75 makes it clear that it is the Lord alone who determines destinies. That he is the righteous judge in all that he is um, setting, setting out, in all that is taking place. He is the rightful judge. Nebuchadnezzar was a, a great and powerful king with many, many people at his, um, under his authority and under his command. But even just in an instant, God made it very clear to Nebuchadnezzar that all that he had could be taken away. And he was made to be as a wild animal for that period of time where God was judging him for his pride and arrogance. So God is the righteous judge here in all nations and in all history. There are a number of statements in the book of Daniel about the control of the Lord over these nations. We'll take the time just to read a few of these to take into some context of our consideration this evening of the control that the Lord has over these nations. So we'll read again in Daniel chapter 2 as we opened our study this evening in verse 21. We'll read that just again. He says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with, the, with him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. It's, a, it's key almost to read that passage again, because this verse, and this praise that, that Daniel gives to God for revealing this matter to him with regards to the, the king. And his vision uh, really sums up the theme of this book that of Daniel. Namely that God is the one who controls all things and grants all wisdom and might. We find that God raises up rulers as well, as well as removing them. Daniel also wrote in our consideration last week in Daniel 4 verse 17. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones. 
The purpose of this decree is that the whole world may understand that the Most High, which is, that is God, rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses, even the lowliest of humans. So even when the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar looked out into his kingdom and all that he had, he took that success and, uh, and glory all for himself without appreciating any, any input uh, that God had in his rule and in his kingdom. Daniel 4 verse 32, referring to King Nebuchadnezzar in our passage last week, reminding him that God of Israel is Lord over all. The prophet made clear to Nebuchadnezzar that when pronouncing judgment upon him, he said, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The prophet Daniel stressed the fact that God will give the kingdom to whoever he wills. He can withdraw kings as well as raise them up and they are to rule at God's pleasure. Nebuchadnezzar, as we know from last week, was warned by God what would happen if he continued to look out at his kingdom with pride in his heart. And God quickly reminded him that all that he had was by way of God's appointment and how quickly it could be taken away. We learn from chapter 2 when Ken uh, spoke to us um, with referring to the kingdoms that God has established. Uh, it is vital to understand that the, the visible kingdom of Christ um, will not come through a process of gradual improvement in the human conditions. Through better political or social systems that man can, then can come up with and to, to improve the governance of the world and from a human point of view. But rather God's plan is to utterly destroy Satan's world system in a cataclysmic judgment these things will be abolished and Satan's world system will be no more. And this, as we were reminded, will help us to focus our efforts on spreading uh, the gospel of Christ. At the same time, when we consider the, the nation of Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom, um, it, it was not a signal to Daniel also that, to abandon Babylon as a failed enterprise. As one who was being, as a, as a, as a nation that was being ruled by um, pagans, by those that uh, had no interest in God, were living to themselves and their own accomplishments and glory and taking pride in all that they did, uh, it was not for Daniel to step back and have no part in it. Uh, but it was so too to appreciate it. If Nebuchadnezzar was reigning by divine appointment, then Daniel would and did, no doubt, count it as a real honour um, to witness for God at the highest level. Um, albeit surrounded by so many uh, sinful things, be it idolatry or, or numerous others, um, thereby expounding his, uh, his, his humble servant 
to, to God in all these matters concerning this Babylonian kingdom. Uh, and he becomes one of the most outstanding exemplars of Israel's high calling to witness um, to, to the true one and true living God amidst a world of sin and a world of idolatry. Uh, yet Daniel st- stood firm in his faith and in his service to the one true and living God. Although God is in control and, and sovereign, even in our day today, in all these things, what he allows in his sovereignty to happen, and um, for whatever rulers and, and leaders that may be placed in those highest places, whether we agree with them or not, God has ordained these things to, to come to pass. And it doesn't mean that we should sit back and let God just deal with everything and for us to take no part in this sinful, idolatrous world. But that we should, as Daniel did, still serve him and be used by God in his sovereign plan, just like Daniel. So fourthly then, God is in control over everything. He is Lord of all. Authority is ultimately under the control of God. Paul wrote to the Romans, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Romans 13 verse 1. God is the one who establishes all authority. And the Bible is very clear on such matters. God alone controls the destinies of the people and nations. That all authorities and governing bodies. Different eras that have passed in history. Different ways of ruling are all set out and established by God. In chapter 2, verses 31 to 49, God reveals a very prophetic dream that came about to King Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and in that dream, it was about the latter days. That the whole course and consummation of the times of the Gentiles... From verse 28 in, in that passage. And there's a long period of human history during which the world dominion is assigned to successive powers. And the city of Jerusalem, it was prophetically making known that it would be trodden down by the Gentiles in Luke um, 21. The empires that were set forth are seen as part of the image of a man. The emphasis, both the completeness of the picture and the fact that the image portrays human history. It reminds us that God, God knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46. And he works all things after the counsel of his own will. God knows the things that are going to come to pass he sets all these things in motion, ordains these things to happen, and God knows the beginning from the end. From the different areas that have taken place and the different developments that we find even in our own history books, especially in the West, we owe an enormous debt to the Greeks and to the Romans in terms of science and philosophy and mathematics, and infrastructure, and law. And the Roman, Roman Empire may have gone, but its legacy is still at the heart of our civilization. 
They were an empire that was very established and well built and uh, dominating in the times where they were, were around. And civil government itself is an ordinance of God in Romans 13. And on the other hand, there's been a much darker side to the human empires also that have been established and have been developed. And there has been barbarity in, in warfare and in, in genocide, total oppression of the minorities, and the list of, of abuses of these empires can go on and on. And so both of the aspects that we considered back in chapter 2, and we will later consider in chapter 7, uh, are necessary to fill out the divine view of the world empires. And uh, the great news, though, that we considered in chapter 2, is that one day they will be brought to an end, and the universal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will be established, uh, which is outlined for us in Revelation 11. In chapter 2, he is depicted as a stone, as we considered then a couple of weeks ago, considered as uh, an inanimate object, whereas in chapter 7, he is the Son of Man, a truly human figure. <coughs> so finally, then we'll just consider the fifth point, that is, the Bible gives illustration of God's involvement with the nations in human history. So we've considered how it is that God ordains the nations, that God allows the various rulers that have been, uh, that have been uh, placed into the highest of places. Given those governing bodies, uh, the, the power to rule, all under God's um, authority and God's desire to allow these things to happen. And as these, as these great empires have been... Um, built up and, uh, and established over the many generations and years that have gone by, we so to see God's involvement in history uh, with these nations. And the Bible gives illustration where God has been involved in human history. The following nations that we will consider are said to have been under God's control. We have Egypt. The Bible says that God's dealings can be seen in his workings with the nation of Egypt. Paul wrote the following to the church at Rome. In Romans 9 verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God showed his mighty power to the Egyptians by means of the plagues, the ten plagues that we so often consider, uh, and even in Sunday Club, where we go through them, God revealed and showed his might and power to the Egyptian nation through means of these plagues to release the, the children of Israel back out from the bondage of the Egyptians. The great Egyptian army was later dra drowned in the Red Sea in pursuit of the nation of Israel, and all of this testified to the power and authority of the God of Israel. That he was in control of all things. That he allowed the nation of Israel to be te te uh, taken captivity uh, in this nation of, of Egypt. And under the rule of the, uh, of the Egyptians. 
And so too was God in control when he raised up Moses to act as that deliverer for uh, the messenger for God where they would be delivered from um, the under the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So it says in Romans 9 verse 17, raised you up. And this refers to the bringing forward or lifting up, which was often used to describe the rise of leaders and countries to position of prominence. Undoubtedly, Pharaoh thought his position and actions were of his own free choice to accomplish his own purposes. And although he acted as of course, we all do with a free will to act in the way that we we um, we 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 please in that sense. Um, God is ultimately in control. And God allowed the actions of Pharaoh to come to pass um, in God's sovereign and righteous plan. In reality, he was there to serve God's purpose. We have also Babylon. And Babylon, the nation that God used to judge Israel, would find themselves finally judged by God. And this would happen through the Medo-Persian Empire, in particular by King Cyrus. And God said the following of King Cyrus in Isaiah 45. He says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze, and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. The Medo-Persian Empire was God's instrument to overthrow Babylon. And the following chapters in Daniel 1-5 to and in Jeremiah 50 testify to this very point. And as we've considered already in the first, chap- first four chapters of Daniel, and we will we'll go further into the book of Daniel, and we'll learn more about the rising and falling of these great nations. Um, the Medo-Persian Empire... Um, as we have learned and will continue to learn, what is the instrument that God used to then overthrow Babylon at this point. And those chapters uh, testify to this point. So then the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, which followed the Babylonian Empire, was also a target of God's judgment. In uh, Daniel 2, he is the one who allowed their empire to rise and he is the one who caused it to fall. And their destiny from start to finish, as with all things, was completely in God's hand. And we have Greece. And after the rise and fall of the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece came on the scene. And Greece also rose and fell according to God's time frame. Uh, we find this chronicle for us in the book of Daniel, in, uh, in, uh, in Daniel 8. And we'll get to those chapters, no doubt. Um, in the first 25 verses in Daniel 8, we see the, the Grecian Empire. 
And again, he was the one in control of their destiny. And it was, it was again another vision depicting the mind and plan of God. Um, one that caused Daniel even to faint when he learned of all these things. Uh, in verse 27 of, of Daniel 8, it says, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Then we have Rome, so the Roman Empire. And according to scriptures, this Roman Empire would rise up after these three previous world empires, outlined to us in Daniel, had, uh, had come to pass. And again, as, uh, as is the theme of our consideration this evening, it was all under God's control. And this happened again exactly as the Bible predicted, because as the Lord, as always, was in total control. Once again, the destiny of the empire was in the hands of the Lord in chapter 7 of Daniel. And uh, this, this fourth beast, if we were to go into it, and, and we will go into it uh, eventually, um, it refers to the fourth beast, and, and powerful and destructive, and it was, was different from the others that had been, that some of their bestial characteristics, uh, but rather it was described as dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong with huge iron teeth. And this speaks to us of the Roman Empire which would follow the Grecian Empire and it would cease and then after a considerable space of time uh, it would be revived. And it is in this revived form that it would have ten horns, that is ten kings and, uh, and the future head of the revived Roman Empire that will be um, the Antichrist. And we'll come to those passages as we consider the Roman Empire um, in, uh, no doubt, a, a few weeks' time. So we have four empires there then. We have um, Egypt, Medo-Persian, uh, or Babylon rather, that God used to judge Israel. Medo-Persian Empire that God used to overthrow um, the Babylonian Empire. The Grecian Empire that again rose and fell within God's time frame and God's utter control and the Roman Empire uh, according to scriptures which would rise up after these three uh, empires had fallen and finally the greatest testimony of God's work found in the nation of Israel God's chosen people of the nation of Israel is the final nation that we will just briefly consider uh, their existence and survival in itself is a, an example of the faithfulness of God, of the existence of God, and of the all-encompassing sovereign um, might and, um, and uh, keeping of this nation. Their existence and the survival in itself um, is a great example of the faithfulness of God. God chose one man, that is Abraham, and called him out from among the unbelieving nations to found a nation that would be a witness to the one true God, God's chosen nation. The Bible records that God made the following promises to Abraham. In Genesis 12, the first three verses, 
It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and make your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The history of the nation Israel contains one example after another of the providential hand of God. The fact that they have survived to this day is a continuous testimony to God's power and control over the events of history. God had promised that he would protect this nation and that they would go on and be, uh, and from even from the accounts in Genesis, that they would be fruitful and they would multiply and their nation would be great. And as Abraham looked out and God uh, made known to him that even the sand that is on the shore and the stars that are in the sky will be his nation. And um, the nation of Israel would be, as it were, innumerable. And God made these promises to Abraham and has kept this nation of Israel ever since and will continue to do so by his faithful hand in these things, this faithful providential hand. Humanly speaking, as we know from the accounts of history, many occasions and many other rulers and nations have risen up and tried to defeat and completely wipe out the nation of Israel. And uh, none have succeeded, and, uh, and none will it succeed. And humanly speaking, there is no reason that they should still exist. But they do exist because of the promises that God made and has made over his chosen nation, Israel. He has kept them from being destroyed, protected them, and they are living testimony to his existence. And history has clearly demonstrated this. So finally then, how has God's dealings with the nations of the world demonstrated his existence, his sovereignty, his might and all these things? Well, history tells us that an all-powerful God has been working behind the scenes in all these things. And from the hand of Daniel to the, to the um, pagan kings of Nebuchadnezzar, God is always in control. And Daniel could shine brightly in the room full of astrologers and soothsayers and, and all those great and mighty wise, apparent, apparently wise men. God revealed many things to Daniel from the beginning of the book of Daniel on throughout the chapters as the kings had many visions concerning God's um, plans for those nations. Daniel would shine brightly as the one true God revealed all those things to him. And he was used as a witness and as a faithful servant by God, even in the middle of a pagan and idolatrous nation. He was faithful and was used by God, even in these great ways. The rise and fall of nations is at God's desire. It is ultimately he who desires their fate, and how and whatever events will unravel and come to pass. And we discover this in the history of Egypt, of Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, Rome, and especially Israel. The histories of these nations testify to the existence of God and his control over all events. 
Uh, we have learned from the previous chapters, even when Cam was um, speaking to us a couple of weeks ago concerning chapter 2 and, and chapter 3, and we considered the trials that would come about, well, no doubt Daniel had a, had a great measure of trials and, and temptations and difficulties that he faced on a daily basis, being surrounded by those that had no part in God. But yet he lived a, a straight and faithful life in, in accordance with God's sovereign plan and will. And God used Daniel in many different ways. The revealing of these dreams and, and visions to these great kings. And uh, in this time frame in history, in this um, snippet of these great nations that in God's control were established, they ra- were rise- raised up and then fell Daniel was faithful and he was privileged with the um, opportunity to have served in one of these great nations, but not for, for Nebuchadnezzar, not for Darius, not for any of these other great kings, but solely for God and his service was for him. And so too is a reminder to us that although we can appreciate and, and we've considered this evening that uh, God is ultimately in control, and uh, all these things that have happened in history are, are a, a credit and an evidence in itself to God's existence and his sovereign plan and will that he has ordained and, and has allowed to come to pass. God has also ordained um, for us to serve him. And uh, so we should not just sit back and think that, you know, all these things are, are going to happen regardless. But um, rather God desires for us um, to serve him in, in a world that is full of idolatry uh, and, um, and sinful living and that we might shine brightly as, as Daniel did um, but not for any self-pride but for God and that we might be a witness and, um, and uh, a, a beacon for the spreading of the gospel for him. And so we discover that from these great nations and from the testimony of Daniel that God is in control. It is a testimony to his existence, a testimony to his sovereignty, to his might, his authority ultimately over all that he puts in control, in, in charge. And uh, his control is, is ultimately and uh, righteously over all these events that take place in in history and as we will look in the next few weeks that will take place too in the coming days. We'll just uh, spend time together now as we um, have a time of prayer.